9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the podcast. This is one of our series where we bring together experts and we let a few folks in to pose questions for the experts. We call this series Ask the Blob. Um, uh, That's, of course, uh, you know, a, a term of endearment for everybody in the national security and foreign policy community. Uh, that was cooked up by the Obama administration a while back. Uh, and we we hold it close to us as as we do the term deep state um, uh, because we, we we take those terms away from our our enemies by doing this. We're very fortunate to have with us today two friends, Juliet Kayyem, who is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she's the faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. Uh, She's also a consultant. She was assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. How are you, Juliet? I'm doing well. Nice to be here again. Very glad to have you with us. Also glad to have with us is Clint Watts, who's a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, like Juliet. He's a regular uh, commentator on TV, former U.S. Army infantry officer, former FBI agent. Uh, and was uh, executive officer of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Hi, Clint. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that uh, made this uh, uh, topic come to mind, obviously in the wake of of January 6th, was what I saw as a a fairly dramatic change, a a change that I would I would suggest is is one of those that happens only every 10 or 20 years in U.S. national security, where there is a wholesale shift in priorities, right? Um, and, and we all remember one happening around uh, September 11th, 2001, where people stopped talking about great power competition, and they started talking about um, uh, terrorist threats and asymmetric threats and those kind of things. Um, it's not that the great power competition went away, it's just that became central focus. Um, and uh, in, in recent years, there's been a shift back to discussion about the, the great power competition. But in the world of you know, dealing with terror threats, Uh, I think it's fair to say that there's a much greater focus today than there has ever been on um, domestic extremism as the most worrisome source of those threats. Again, it's not to say that foreign threats don't exist, but the real question and the first question that I'm going to pose to both of you, and I'll pose you a couple of my own, and then we'll fold in some from the audience. We already have some from the audience. And by the way, if you're in the audience, the webinar audience, and you want to pose a question, all you've got to do is go to the Q&A section on the, on the Zoom screen and, and put in your own uh, uh, question, and I'll try to get to it or paraphrase it or weave it into the discussion. Uh, 
Um, but the question, um, and, and, and let me start with you, Juliet, and then we'll go yeah. to Clint, is are we ready for this shift? Are we organized for it? Do we have the laws and the mm. books for it? Do we have the resources within the government to handle it? So I think there's a, a couple answers. That. The first of all is, is the it, right? I mean, in other words, uh, uh, there are a lot of responses to the it of which um, only one piece is the government response. So I, I, I'm not sure where Clint is on this. I'm not a I won't cry if there's a domestic terrorism law, but I don't think it's a precondition to moving forward. We've prosecuted lots of people. There is sentencing disparity. I get that between international terrorism, domestic terrorism, but we put a lot of bad people who have done domestic terrorism in jail for long periods of time without an exclusive statute. So, so the tools are there. I think the focus is now there um, in terms of the things that government knows how to do, which is essentially investigate and prosecute, although you know we'll, we'll find out over time in terms of resource. But there's two other actors that are very relevant to this. One of, of course, is the social media platforms um, and the deplatforming of what I have called this, or you know, of, of, of call Trump what you will, but he is the, clearly the spiritual guiding light, the North Star of a domestic terrorism groups, and they listen to him. So the deplatforming of him and, and others. So there's going to be a private sector response. And I think um, also the shaming, people don't like the word shaming, I don't mind it. Uh, but, but, you know, the sort of isolation of people economically, whether it's banks or hotels, or even in places of employment, that are simply saying, you're not welcome, right? And then the third piece is, of course, leadership, which is not just government, it is, but it is, you know, it is Biden compared to Trump. It is not having a nurturer in the Oval Office of, of racial uh, bigotry, but having someone who, who does sort of shame it with his, you know, President Biden is good with his, you know, come on, man, you know, that's a sort of a shaming. It's like, come on, you know better. I think, despite all the politics and hypocrisy of it, I am quite happy with McConnell's statement. I think if you view it through the lens of, 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 uh, of uh, radicalization, I think it can be helpful in the future, um, despite its hypocrisy. Uh, and, um, and so there's different pieces, but that's sort of where I am right now. And I'm kind of in a more hopeful than not mood than I was say on January 7th, because it wasn't clear that, that a lot of these different things would happen then, the arrests, the prosecutions, the isolation, the, the you know, deplatforming, the, um, the statements uh, made by, by leaders in all sorts of walks of life. So I'm, I'm gonna be in a good mood for a while. I've, it's, we've had you on many times before. This is uncharacteristically optimistic. And, uh, <laughs> um, it's I'm a new year. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, yeah, right. I'm, re I'm relying on Clint to counterbalance that. Very, <laughs> I'll go negative early. Okay, I'll go. Start out. <laughs> go negative early. So there, uh, there are three forces that are containing the domestic extremist circles right now. One, President Trump isn't talking. Uh, any way you look at it, he he was the unifying force of domestic extremist groups that would otherwise not get along. So, you know, if it's a militia group versus a white supremacist group versus the young accelerationist, like let's start a second civil war kind of folks online, he was saying things that they all, you know, conjured around. You could see it that day at that protest. I mean, there were parents with their kids yeah. right behind guys in full military gear storming you know, the front of the Capitol, it's 
bizarre, right, to see that, but that's because it is a collection of many different groups. The second part is um, many of them are in pursuit, are being pursued right now by law enforcement, and they know that. So they're, you see them breaking, you know, some are de-escalating, some are accelerating. You're seeing a lot of splinter groups over the last month, some that are leaning into more extremism, many that are backing away. Um, so that is creating all sorts of tumult, which leaves people unsure what to do. And the third thing is the inavailability of targets. What has not been addressed is COVID-19 has put most people in their houses. And so people will be like, well, when's the next big attack? I was like, well, you have to have a target to attack. The sixth was a, an event that brought people together with a designated target. At the moment, the only target that I'm worried about is vaccine distribution points, mm -hmm. because we've seen some of that, the white supremacists and anti-vax talk actually overlap considerably based on the different conspiracies they believe. So if you unfold that forward, I think in terms of the response um, part of it, the FBI has actually been on this kind of since 2018 from that Walmart El Paso shooting on, you saw them do a series of arrests against the base and Adam Wap and some of these more extreme variants. And they've done very good, but they're overwhelmed now. And part of the reason they're overwhelmed is because their own leader, the president was saying, you can't trust the FBI and you know they're all rigged. And that cuts down on your sources and your intelligence hard to operate. The, the other compounding problem of this is Trump's politicization of the military and law enforcement has created a wedge in there where we can't actually know if we're policing it well or if we even have our eye on it because there are elements of both that are so in belief that Trump won the election that they are continuing you know, on with that conspiracy. And then there's a third part, which I think uh, Juliet brought up, which is exactly right, which is the social media phenomenon of this, which we encountered this in the international space, yeah. which was we had to have foreign terrorist organization designation. We had to know what to call something so that even if it was ideologically aligned with it, we could preemptively start to investigate. And the FBI built a whole system of doing assessments and type one and type two and looking less intrusive measures to try and get ahead of people that have no criminal record that are talking online as part of groups that want to kill other Americans. We have that phenomenon now and there's no good system for it. The FBI really has to go with the old conspiracy cases and it's too late. That's part of the reason why they can't get in front of these things on the domestic scene. That goes to the terrorism law question. Mm -hmm. I don't think our Congress can pass a terrorism, domestic terrorism designation law, nor could they effectively designate because they're so partisan, um, they would have you looking for the 400 Antifa people nationwide <laughs> while ignoring 10,000 white supremacists that are ready yeah. you know, to go kill people. But what like Director Ray does need to be able to do is say, okay, I've now connected 10 cases to Boogaloo, an accelerationist group that wants to start a second civil war in the United States. I am gonna use the methods of assessment using public records, looking at social media, to identify potential leads before we have a yeah. really devastating plot. I would love for the director of the FBI to have that. And can I add something to this? Um, there are hate crime statutes. So what we, what one of my worries about our, our sort of media fascination, fascination with QAnon and stuff, which is relevant and they're a piece of this, is that we're forgetting, you know, the noose and the, and the, you know, the, uh, the Confederate flags and the and the white supremacy, the what we call, you know, the the the, the great replacement. The, they 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 believe in, um, uh, you know, the theory that the more diverse America becomes, they are replaced, which is technically true in in some ways, uh, as we become a majority non-white country. 
but that so so we do have hate crime statutes to deal with the the racial animus that that is uh, animating so much of this, but sometimes gets lost in the conspiracy theory. And I just want to say one thing about the race thing that you know it is these guys are animated by a um, a theory that is more sophisticated. I don't want to say that, but more um, uh, um, justifies violence. Uh, in their mind. And so it's, I had mentioned the great replacement theory in 2016, the irony is when the year that uh, President Trump becomes president is the first year that the US census documents that the births of non-white US babies outnumbers white US babies. First time in American history. And this is not including immigration. This is US citizen babies. Well, anyone born here, right? So um, that now means what we've all anticipated, which by 2040, 41 is, is basically we will become majority non-white. These guys then, so then they, they are replaced. They are demographically replaced. That justifies the violence. In their mind, that is what it is. In other words, the, the pie is no longer expanding. It is now shrinking for them. Um, and so that idea of replacement is what animates the violence. That is racially based. That's a hate crime. So you do have federal statutes that can go after some of the some of this, not all of it, but some of it. Okay, well let's let's let me ask another question that is related to that, and um, and again I encourage those that are in the in the audience pose their questions. We've got a few already, um, uh, but uh, I'll start this with uh, with Clint, and then I'll then I'll yeah. then I'll go to Juliet. How do we characterize the threat? And one of the reasons that I bring this up follows on Juliet's point, is it all race-based? Uh, but we've got a number of groups. Uh, we've seen these groups in places other than the Capitol. You mentioned some earlier attacks that have taken place. You mentioned Texas. Mm -hmm. We certainly had the one in, 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 in Pittsburgh. We've, we've seen them in the streets this summer, counteracting the BLM thing. Um, you know, people, you know, lo lone actors uh, who sort of get drawn into the social network, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouses of this world, um, you know, he killed people. It's it's actually it's part of this. Uh, and one of the things that we saw that, you know, sort of falls into the bailiwick, Clint, that you've been spending a lot of time dealing with in the last uh, election cycle, when we were extremely worried about more foreign disinformation, is that the the, the, the greater source of disinformation in the 2020 election mm -hmm. cycle was domestic disinformation. And so, you know, you have, you know, uh, domestic violent extremists, but you also have domestic cyber extremists. You have, you know, so if we're going to put our arms around the problem, we have to define it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that what we're going to do is you know what we always do in these cases, you know, some guy decides that he's going to blow up his shoe on an airplane and then we spend the next 25 years taking our shoes off every time we get on an airplane, although that never happens again. You know, we sort of fixate on one thing and it's like, well, I guess we're just going to have to put up walls around all our Capitol buildings as opposed to dealing with the real threat. So, Clint, can you characterize the real threat? Yeah, it, I'm glad that you brought this up too, David, because we were trying to draw it today. It's actually right there. I, I'm going to publish it, but we're, how do you draw it in one picture, right? I think there's only two dimensions that matter a lot. One is how do they organize? Is it 
uh, vertical or cellular sort of diffuse online, which we, you know, you could kind of put that as one axis. And the second part is generational, old versus young. You can go through the records of the people that are arrested at the Capitol and you see two totally divergent groups. Yeah. It, you know, it is Oath Keepers, 3% Militia, you know, these organized groups, legendary groups that have been around for a long time, much older members, you can look at their arrest ages. If you go then to the online base, Adam Waffen, those that were intercepted before, the Boogaloo, uh, the guys in uh, Michigan, the Wolverine Militia variant, much younger and more connected online and, and more gun-toting, more sprung to violence. And when you're watching the splits online over the last month, it almost immediately goes generational. And chapters of the organized militia say, ah, we just want to drink beer. We're not part of that <laughs> Proud Boys group. There's literally the drinking club phenomenon going on again. And then on the online space, it's these accelerations just going, you know, kind of wild. So if you're going to deal with this problem, there are things that we wanted to do during the last counterterrorism era we did not do, which is where do you focus? And we should be focusing as close to boom as possible yeah. right now. And the FBI, I think, and DHS have gotten much better at this. It's just a scaling problem. Can they, can they meet all of the signals to get there? And that means you got to be in that online space in the same way we were with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, that in the domestic space. And that's a, that's a tough spot to be in domestically. On that front, at the same point. Um, right. I, I just want to interject, because that's a place where our laws actually preclude doing a bunch yes. of things, right? Yeah. I, I can see more from here at the House than I could if I was at FBI headquarters right now yeah. on, a, on a domestic extremism, you know, online space, unless it touches a foreign entity, which, you know, we can probably come back to, which Russian imperial movement, some of these foreign organizations have been designated. Mm -hmm. But that's small amounts. On the second part, the only one that I'm really worried, I think the militia thing can be handled and we've done it before. I think you're seeing a lot of local communities say, why are you guys overthrowing the government? You know, there is already some pushback around these people. I think that is more manageable. Uh, I am actually not as worried about the military aspect of extremists in the military. We did that in the 1990s. The first FBI agent I met was coming to my infantry company because they were looking for the bomb training records of Eric Rudolph, uh, who had happened to be in that company, you know, two years before infantry company. So they know how to do it and they have a top-down structure. My big worry are local law enforcement and particularly yeah. the sheriff's departments that have pledged oh. sort of allegiance to oh. President Trump and said, we don't respect the rule of President Biden, you know, as our president and we will not follow that. And there's these associations that have pledged to him. And that should come as no surprise, you know, look through Trump's history, Sheriff Clark, Eric Pale, it, it's been some of the elected law enforcement at a local level that are choosing on a partisan sort of line. And that is the, the angle that I don't have a good answer for, which is how do you bring that back under the Department of Justice, you know, at a federal mm -hmm. level, like, hey, we're all trying to protect against foreign and domestic citizens when they say, I don't believe in this government. I actually believe someone else won the election. That's my... Mm -hmm. My concern, I can't crack the egg on. I don't have a good answer for Juliet? I think, let me, uh, that was so terrific. I don't have much to add, except, but maybe I just say something about recruitment. Because if you look at, so, so your, your worry is obviously, who's the group? How are they formed? What are they doing? 
um, and can you disrupt it before the bad thing happens? But how are they filling their numbers? So, and how are they expanding or are they expanding? So, and that's where, you know, I don't mean to be Pollyannish. I know things are crappy and like whatever, but it didn't, it could have been different after January 6th, I think is the way I look at it. And so if I thought just from a recruitment perspective, if I'm thinking about this as a, as a dangerous, violent group, and you can call it a terrorist group, you call it a kid, some people like using counterinsurgency, I don't, but, you know, or a hate group or whatever, how do I stop their capacity to recruit? And this is where I do think you can learn from counterterrorism efforts and other efforts that basically, how do you stop people, how do you stop curious people from being bad? So there's a bunch of things that we're seeing now and then I think have to continue to do, which is one is you deplatform the hate. We did this internationally. Can we continue to do it with Trump or, or, um, uh, uh, or any international federal, uh, 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 foreign nexus? Um, and, uh, and does that, uh, because it's not just him being silenced. Uh, recruitment breed and money breed on success. So for most organizations, in other words, you can get people to do bad things if they think that that bad thing is gonna is not futile, right? In other words, we're 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 you know we're on the pathway. So you want that loser aura to sort of surround all of it. So that's why the disruptions are in the 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 arrests and investigations are important. They're not just for what happened in the past, their future, right? Their anti-recruitment tools so that we say, these guys burst out crying and this guy has to have his vegetarian food. Do you really think, I mean, that story about the, the guy with the whatever, that crazy thing that needs his, you know, is a, is a vegan, that is also a great anti-recruitment tool. I mean, what a, what a loser fool that his mother is whining for him, right? I mean, in other words, so you wanna create these narratives that this is the losing team um, you create paranoia within it, which we've, we've been reading about, that there's a fear of informants uh, within the groups. So recruitment is also something to think about in terms of how, how big could this get? Uh, and and can, we, can we mute the curious before they become violent? Okay, so I've got, I got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to go back and forth to, the, okay, to each of you. We've already got sort of half a dozen of them up, right. and we've got about 50 minutes to go so fairly crisp answers okay. and 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 some of them will be all over the place i'll pose the first one to um clint and then we'll just go straight through the list so clint the first question i got is officials and experts have stated that right-wing extremists in the u.s sometimes have international connections can you add some color to mm -hmm. that statement yes strong I, I, what i would say is uh, the way uh, ISIS looked online during the International Terrorism Days, you know, spread across diaspora communities around the world, the white nationalist, the white supremacist space looks the same. You could stretch it from the U.S. to Canada, U.K., France, Germany, and into Russia. And I think the Russia component is interesting with the Russian imperial movement. The leader of the base currently, he's from New Jersey, currently mm -hmm. resides in Russia, uh, the Nordic Front. In Sweden, the, the two bombers from there trained in Russia. So it is an international terrorist network that looks no different if you can just take the whole idea of U.S. borders away and, and what we call domestic international. In, in my mind, with terrorism today and social media, there is no such thing as domestic and international. It's mm -hmm. just terrorism. And every movement has connections outside the U.S. borders. So, Juliet, another mm -hmm. question. Um, 
which is kind of an interesting one. Which, yeah. What is the role of women in right-wing extremist groups? I was surprised to see so many women at the Capitol on January 6th. My understanding is that women are often suppressed and belittled in such groups. What's your take on that? No, I mean, in fact, we've seen some of the leadership, uh, uh, women rise to the leadership of some of these groups. Uh, we're good organizers. <laughs> we're good communicators. <laughs> we're online a lot. Uh, we multitask. I mean, you know, look, I'm, um, uh, and so there's an appeal. Uh, uh, there, there's no there's no exclusion uh, uh, that that. Um, Are you saying uh, you think that the proud I'm girls, the proud girls would do a better job than. <laughs> yeah, the Exactly, right. Then the proud voice, uh, but uh, you know, I, I would say there's so so you'll see women, and I uh, and this is true of ISIS. The idea that they're somehow like brainwashed and like women don't actually know what they're doing is like the most infantilizing notion. So these are uh, women who should be arrested, uh, who should face conspiracy charges. These are um, more often than not. Uh, you know, not that not the demure. Oh, my man told me to to do this. So that is one thing. But I will say the irony, or irony is if you look at the arrest records of people of the men, um, a disproportionate number of them, not surprising, um, also beat up an ex girlfriend, beat up a wife. Like they all have. A lot of them have. Uh, 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 gender abuse issues. I would say so. There's a there's a weird balance or, or, or co co-living coexistence another question which is is rather long and i'm going to try to boil it down um deals with this notion that um people can get involved in these movements virtually remotely via the internet without actually getting recruited uh so it can be a broader group um and uh and this, this makes some of the challenge a little bit more complicated because it does get into the free speech area. I'll, I'll just read the second half of the question, okay. um, Clint, and then this may be one you both want to address, but start with you, Clint. Because of the widespread radicalization that's taken place in recent years, the Biden administration faces dual challenges. Not only must it reverse the damage to civil rights done by Trump and his allies, but also must do the harder work of exposing and dismantling the engines of entrenched systemic white supremacy that have threatened inclusive democracy in the U.S. Um, I, you know, I think they're accurately said, stating the, some of the complexity associated with this job. But then it says, so why are Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer mm. reluctant to fully engage in timely investigations um, and hearings? Now, it must be said, Nancy Pelosi has said that they're launching yeah. an investigation into what happened on on on, on January 6th. But Clint, you, you brought up a point earlier, which I actually found a bit chilling, and it was kind of a throwaway point. But um, the, the point was, you didn't think that the Congress was going to really go after this um, because it would involve the political process of labeling groups. And there'll be a lot of people on the Republican side who would say, well, you can't label the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, you know, those are favorites of the president. Uh, but go ahead with Antifa. You know, it's 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 kind of almost worse than that. You know, there was Josh Hawley given, you know, pumping his fist out to these people and Ted Cruz standing on the hood of a car or whatever he was standing on, you know, cheering these people on and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, 
others, you know, you know, you know, sort of talking them up and, you know, speaking to them as brothers. These groups have active advocates in the United States Congress. There were no advocates for ISIS in the United States Congress, but these groups are, are sort of constituent groups of the far right in the US political spectrum. How, how does that complicate things? And I would add, does it make it impossible? Does, does it make it impossible to deal with this? Clinton mm. and Juliet. Not impossible, but extremely yeah. more difficult because it's very similar to like, how do you deal with Russian disinformation in the election when President Trump fires everybody right, that is involved with that? It was a similar problem, but now it's you know, on Capitol Hill. I testified in 2019 on a domestic terrorism hearing and it was with the Senate Homeland Affairs. And uh, Senator Johnson went out of his way to say you can't call it or you should not call it right wing extremism. And so it just got to this thing like we had somebody from Anti-Defamation League there, University of Maryland, you know, in their start program. I'm there and everyone's like, well, here are the numbers. Yeah. And then you see the FBI director the very next year come out and go, the numbers are overwhelmingly this white supremacist, you know, number one. Um, and by the way, they're wearing Trump hats. So what do you yeah. want from me, right? Like, <laughs> here's his picture. You, it's the mugshot. Like, what do you want? They showed up at the Capitol, yeah, right? Was, I, I found it, I have to admit, I just got to interject this, watching that impeachment trial. And they're like, how can you say the president's behind this? And it's and like, well, they were carrying Trump flags and wearing Trump hats <laughs> as they were trashing the Capitol. And, that and was, was a clue. And he was standing and, right and over you, there 10 minutes right, ago. Exactly. And you called Trump <laughs> during it to tell him to stop his people. But besides that, you yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> really. Anyway, sorry, Clint. It was yeah, no one, no one called the governor of some other state to tell right, his people to, to condemn, exactly. right? Like, that it doesn't was, make any sense. Yeah. So it makes it much more difficult because I'm sure at the FBI and DHS, they're on pins and needles about how to even talk about the threat to the people who are providing oversight of them. At the same point as someone who was born and grew up in Missouri, I mean, watching Josh Hawley run around pumping his fist, you know, that is an empowering thing when you know yeah. you have an elected leader who he's essentially saying, I have your back in this house, um, no matter what comes your way. And so, Imagine being the FBI agents in Missouri, let's say, right? And you're going after uh, a group that votes for Josh Hawley that also wants to overthrow the United States based on what they're saying, or, or white supremacists. And you have to go brief those numbers. He's on the Senate Intel Committee, right? He's on a lot of these intel, intel, oversight committees. How do you get around that? Like it gets really painful and it slows down everything, right? It creates that cushion where the extremists are, have the upper hand on you, they can move quicker. Yeah. It causes a pause in, in, in the whole system. It's the opposite of what we did during the war on terror years, where we were constantly trying to accelerate and move quicker against the terrorists. I think that's right. And there's nothing to add to that. I think that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, the, the, maybe the greatest de-radicalization tool is voting. Just vote. You know, it's just like at some stage, these guys are... Don't know what to tell you. Well, if you know, that's, that's true if you believe elections work. But yeah. today... No, I know. I mean, today, the disgraced former president of the United States was on Fox News to praise a, yeah. a, a departed right wing talk show host who shall go nameless here. And 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 the president said, one of the reasons I like this guy is he believed I won the election. Yeah, too. He's still saying he won the election. And so, you know, there there are tens of millions of people out there. Right 
who just don't believe our electoral system works. So, so on that point, let me direct this to you, um, Juliet. Uh, I see us running out of time, so I'm going to okay. do one to you, and I wonder to, to Clint here. The, the question is this: With all the different media yeah. avenues of news, would it be beneficial for the fairness doctrine or an updated version of it to be reinstituted or into place? Would that help slow the spread of white national extremist messaging? Again, just to broaden it a little bit, yeah. there is a First Amendment issue here. Um, but the role that social media platforms have suggests that the extreme of suggesting they have no responsibility yeah. isn't working. So, so how do we change that? Right. So uh, I've changed on this. So, and I think it's good that we that we take this out of the First Amendment context because these are private. Uh, uh, companies and they're choosing who or who is or isn't on their platforms and um, smart people who claim otherwise know better, right? I mean, in other words, the right wingers who are, or even J.D. Vance yesterday sort of saying, I can't believe they took, Twitter took, you know, President Trump off, off, uh, off Twitter. What about the First Amendment? And you're like, you know, you're a lawyer, you know better. So, uh, but I have changed on this. Uh, and do think that uh, pl you know platforms are obviously content providers. I think one of the successes of uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg um, in in the sense of of setting the dialogue is uh, he convinced us that his decision not to regulate conduct was apolitical. In other words, I'm not doing anything. Therefore, it's apolitical. Meanwhile, the entire apparatus is shoving crap down on everyone's face, including stuff that's being manipulated by foreign governments and stuff. So I do think it needs to be regulated. Um, I think Facebook needs to be broken up now. It is a content provider. Um, it is, uh, and it's the way that we get news is through it. So it should be regulated in the way that we regulate uh, uh, news organizations and subject to the same laws that news organizations are. Um, and uh, and because it is un, it's not fixable, and they've not shown any way to fix it. And they're they're convinced. One final thing: they're convincing us that their Supreme Court or whatever they're calling this thing, right, is gonna be the solution as if self-regulation, I mean, ultimately that group is just a self-regulating group. It's not an outside group, but they're hired by Facebook. They were designed by Facebook. They're getting paid by Facebook. Um, and so the idea that Facebook can figure out its own regulatory system, I think is, is off. So I've changed on this though. I was definitely hands off for most of my, up until about four years ago. Well, I think, you know, from 1998 yeah. when the law or 97, when the law was drafted until now, there was a, a lot of evolution in what, yeah. in, in what right. happened. So we have right. some practical experience. Yeah. Uh, we got four minutes left here. So um, not sure I agree with the premise of this, Clint, but mm. take, take it where you want to go. Why are Americans reluctant to acknowledge similarities between German fascism in the mm. 1930s and the current erosion mm. of the two-party system? because of the radicalization by white supremacists of the GOP. The reason I'm not comfortable with it is I think there's a lot of discussion of that, but what, you know, I mean, uh, I, th I think obviously people are worried, you know, that, you know, the, you know, the beer hall push and, and, you know, and, and Hitler's years in prison didn't, didn't slow him down. Ultimately they, they built, they built to what we saw ultimately happen um, in 1933 and beyond. So what's, what are your thoughts about those parallels? 
I think America is much more diverse in terms of views in a much larger plurality than what you would have seen that dynamic occurring in, in, in Germany. I, I just know personally that people who I know who will always vote for the GOP, it doesn't matter what yeah. the, who the leader is, were angry like I've never seen them before around January 6th. And I, 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 see, I do see that as a reactionary buffer. I think the other part of it is the electoral college is the only thing that really enables that to sort of continue to move forward because you have a party that keeps playing to a minority, in this case, the white supremacist minority of the country. And that dynamic continues only because of the, that structured system. And, and that will burn itself out. What I find more interesting at the moment is um, as people increasingly spend more time online, uh, I don't know what people are saying when they say Russia or the US. Yeah. Right now, there is a, I got asked to evaluate you know, Russia at a time where Biden was taking over and Navalny is leading mass protests against Putin. There's only one constant over the last 10 years, Putin's still been in charge, right? And America is flipping every four years, back and forth, back and forth. The world as I see it, if I'm just doing analysis during the day, is a pro-democracy element that runs all the way through Europe into Russia and a pro-authoritarian element that runs all the way from Russia back into the United States. And that's sort of a sifting that can only happen because we can connect with each other in technology. And what I really see is the three internets being the bigger issue and one of them being an authoritarian strain of internets, which is fascist, it's authoritarian. It creates patterns which bring about the sort of like what people I think see or hear as the sort of Nazi fascism, which is out there, but also sometimes ignores the other massive currents going on, you know, around the world in terms of democracy and promotion. Hong Kong being another example of that. Uh, Navalny and protest in Russia. We sometimes forget that and discount it. Yeah, no, well, in fact, the, you know, I was going to say, don't forget China because the same yeah. thing extends off yeah. to China. And there are three models for the internet right now. There's a, an American model, which is sort of free for all. The internet was created as a kind of a, a you know, public space and and the, the more freedom, the better. There's a kind of a European model where you can, you require people to opt in to give up their privacy. You, It's a little bit more regulated um, space consistent with their sort of view of government. And then I, there's what I call this, you know, this sort of the Chinese model, which is that the internet is the, the, the property of the sovereign and the sovereign can govern the internet however they they will choose to do it, whether it's the Great Firewall of China or, or, uh, or the surveillance state. Um, and, and, and the world hasn't chosen. We, we thought the U.S. Yeah. was going to win. Yes. But, but, but the world has not chosen that yet. And, we, and we're sort of in the, in the game here. So here's a final question for you. Um, Juliet, the, and I'm going to take the question and ta elaborate on it on a, on a bit. Um, it, it's why is is FBI Director Ray yeah. not in front of uh, a co one committee or another every single day testifying? Who knew what went about well, the about uh, about the about, fifth about uh, the sixth about the, well, I, I guess it's about the sixth. But I'm I want to take it a, a different direction, which is you. Uh, did this kind of outreach stuff for the Department of Homeland yeah. Security. Part of fighting this 
is showing that the fight is going on. Part of, you know, dealing with the justice process is it takes a while. If you were at the Department of Homeland Security right now, what would you be telling Secretary Mayorkas in terms of what they should be communicating, how they should be communicating, how they should be showing the public that this is being taken in hand? How would you work with DOJ on that? So I, I would think that, so a couple things. I mean, one is if I'm at DHS now, I would wait, honestly, I would wait until you get a confirmed AG. And the reason why is we need everything to look incredibly uh, legit and new uh, uh, new page. And so I do think that if, uh, um, if uh, the new, oh my God, now I'm, um, Oh my God, you guys, now this is my senior moment. The new AG, Mary Garland. thank you, of course, um, uh, of Garland comes in um, and uh, sets the stage for prosecutions. If I'm DHS right now, I'm holding off. The reason why is because I think there's a limited role for non-prosecutorial and non-investigatory issues. I, I, okay, so that's one thing. The, and I would dump the entire CVE program. This is the Countering Violent Extremism. It was not successful with foreign intelligence groups, foreign terrorist groups. It won't be successful with domestic terrorist groups. The Biden administration said during the campaign to the Arab and Muslim groups, it would drop it. It should just drop it and say, our job is to make sure that our agencies, CBP, ICE, all the conservative ones, are not contributing to this. And I would clean house if I were DHS. That's my number one job right now. Do you have anything to say on that, Clint, before we wrap? No, I think uh, Director Ray is going to be out there all summer, you know, late spring and summer. It's coming. Uh, They're also busy, to be honest. I mean, I can't think of a time when the FBI had more cases to start and close in one month in history. I mean, recent history. I mean, this has been incredible watching the charging documents come out every day. So. And looking at COVID-19, you know, several of the other policy issues that Biden's got on his plate, I think he's, he's got his hands full and it'll, it will happen in time. Yeah, quite apart from the to-do list McConnell's speech about Trump gave him, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting thing that the Republicans who spoke out said, hey, even, even Trump's lawyer said, we have a justice system here, prosecutor. Yeah. You know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that how that colors things. Right. Um, well, this has been a great discussion. I knew it would be a great discussion. Both Thank of you, you guys are great, informed, engaged, and you care about this stuff. Um, and we are extremely grateful. We're grateful to the folks who joined in yeah. on the webinar part of this. This is fun. We're starting to do this every single week because the questions are better than you know my ah. questions. Um, but it also gets our members involved. And the more interactive this experience is, the more it's different from CNN and MSNBC. You can really, you know, you can really join in. So hopefully you guys will be back. There's going to be a lot to discuss on this front. Hopefully the audience will be back. We've got different shows every single day of every single week right now. We do we do five shows a week. So wow. go to the dsrnetwork.com for more of what's coming up. And while you're at the dsrnetwork.com, if you want to get involved, ask questions at these sections, there's one way to do it. Sign up to be a member. It doesn't cost much. It's less than a Substack subscription to whatever <laughs> you might subscribe to on Substack. And, uh, and, and you can, you know, go in and, you know, ask the blob. Um, neither of you are, are blobby, by the way, and and uh, Thank you. uh, uh you're, you're great, you're great guests, and uh, we will we'll see you soon. And in the meantime, um, stay safe. Uh, so 
Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks, David. Great to see you, you, Julia. Great to see you. I'll see you soon.